0: Okay, it is now part three mm-hmm. of the Black Dahlia, and on this one, let me get that a little bit closer, to right. you. So on this one, I um, was done getting the script ready, and I came across this guy's po- uh, blog, and I don't know if his name is like right at the beginning of this, but it's crimereads.com the Black Dahlia History Los Angeles Cold Case has some good stuff.
1: Crime mm-hmm. Okay. Crime
0: Reads. And then and I'll have these in the show notes, but I'm trying to find the guy's name that has been investigating this for a long time.
1: Which will be on outline of a Mm-hmm.
0: Larry Harnish, H A R N I S C H. And he uh, is like to me, he is such an investigator. He's not a detective, he worked for a, a newspaper, but he is very methodical. And what's important to him is facts. He will not go with anything that's not facts. Oh, so I came across this after I got the script done, and I wanted to go through some of the things that he had written down that I highlighted. So this is almost like a bonus more than it is a part three, okay, because it gets into. One of the suspects in depth, I was hinting on the last episode that actually knew uh, Elizabeth Short very briefly, is more like a you know acquaintance at an event.
1: Is he just investigating it, or he believes that's who it is?
0: He's he. Everybody believes that they're suspects of one. Right,
1: Right, right.
0: But what I liked about his thought is that he's not adding. Like he's not making it fit right, and um so which is easy to do right, so he starts investigating um now, I found out from his blog site that she was actually the first female victim of nineteen forty
1: seven really mm-hmm. the yeah. first
0: ever mm-hmm. of nineteen
1: forty seven yeah
0: wow, and then um You know, it talks about how, you know, the numerous books, the numerous Mm -hmm. newspaper articles, several movies. Yes. In uh, fact,
1: I've seen one.
0: And then even um, video games. I had no idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he talks about, you know, like at the Biltmore, where she was last seen, they uh, have a black Dahlia cocktail, which I thought I should have I should've gotten the recipe. Mm-hmm.
1: That would have been perfect for our bo- podcast. Yeah. We try to have a cocktail or wine a beginning of each podcast.
0: Yeah, so in our seasons, you know, we're like basically having you taste test, you know, wines. Right.
1: But this this season or this mid
0: mini series, series,
1: mm-hmm. it, it's cocktails from the 40s, 50s, basically, 60s. Basically I
0: googled what were the most popular cocktails per case because we've got some that are 47 mm-hmm. 45 we got one that's all the way back to fifteen ninety, and that's actually wine because they would drink wine or beer uh, because the water was usually bad
1: i'd be interested to see what's in her recipe i would too we might drink. have to have
0: that like it, if there's another part to her just right. go ahead and have hers right. mm-hmm. okay and then also i found out there's a michigan death metal band that's called the black dahlia murder i thought that was interesting A what? What is that? A metal band. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. And then um, they've had a detective assigned to this since 1960. So once the original detectives died, they've they've continued. And then uh, LAPD Detective Mitzi Roberts, who's been in charge of the case for the last decade, said, after all these years, I still get about a call a week.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be interested on the evidence. Back I in the 40s, how DNA. they kept it, if they kept yeah. the DNA. Because I have heard of some departments after so long.
0: And they're not They destroy to.
1: or accidentally they're lose. They're not supposed to, I yeah, know. for murder. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, she said some are from people that have done a lot of research. They have a theory. Uh, she gets uh, calls from people with repressed memories who oh, tell wow. me that the killer was their dad or their uncle or neighbor. Right. And then there are nut jobs who, you know, claim to solve non-astronomical oh, numbers. Oh, yes. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Astrological, not astronomical.
1: Right. Okay. And that does happen a lot, in a lot of cases.
0: And then uh, she gets pestered so much about it that her supervisor's like, don't do any interviews. So the fact that she talked to this guy is interesting, you know, because... It's like, stop, because it keeps bringing attention Mm and nut jobs and stuff. They can't really solve the case. But then
1: again, you never know. Some cases, it just takes one Mm -hmm. out of all of them. Mm -hmm. Just one person that might know someone, uh, you know, back in the, you know, grandfather or Mm -hmm. great-grandfather. You don't ever know.
0: Yeah. But again, I'm just not sure how you can, like, for sure solve it without DNA or a matching fingerprint or something. I didn't know that she was uh, sodomized. And that there oh. was sperm there until I did my research, and we you know talked about it last night, so it makes you wonder what did were they did they take samples and are they degraded or are they enough or are they waiting for technology to you know get even better because they're pretty sure it's degraded because you know technology just keeps getting better and better with the DNA
1: but in the forties the DNA wasn't there, of course, right, but those maybe they didn't they think still about kept,
0: it. They, it's amazing when you look at the detectives back in the day where they would, they would take all the biologicals and store them. I remember one cop, he said, I didn't even know why I was doing that. Like now, obviously they need blood typing. So they do that. But you know, it's like you have a sense, like we need to keep everything related to this, even if we don't know how we can use it because technology advances so much that one day you might be able to use that very thing and solve it.
1: Well, I wish this would before my lifetime's over me be too. solved, I'm very really, really curious, but the ones we discussed last night, I just don't think it, any I of don't those the are... The only a-
0: one that's a maybe for me is still George Hodell, in spite of the fact his son has him as the most prolific serial killer in history i I would not discount that he was involved in the Black dahlia's case see um, and i
1: I don't think he is
0: yeah i'm I'm tending toward so, maybe not right, but um <coughs> This guy um, asked the detective, and it actually it may be a man, um, not a female. But anyway, uh, why it's so fascinating, why there's so much obsessive focus on it. And he thinks, number one, it's unsolved, number two, the nickname, and then number three, how horrible the crime was. Mm-hmm. And especially back in the day, he's like, if you take one of those elements away, probably no one would probably care. I thought that was sad.
1: The, I, the, the fact that she was laid out how she was, to me, is the most fascinating.
0: Yeah. Not her
1: lifestyle, because maybe back then a lot of women got her. I don't know.
0: Well, what he said is, in L.A., so in that time frame alone, uh, there was the White Orchid murder, the Red Hibiscus murder, the White Carnation murder, the White Flame murder. But none Really? Of, yeah. But none of them caused the attention that the Black Dahlia did. Um, there were also countless bizarre unsolved murders in L.A. at the time. Uh, most of them had been forgotten.
1: What's interesting, they named them all after flowers. I know. I wonder why.
0: Must have been the thing back then.
1: I mean, like hers was because she stuff. went she to the movie the and loved the Blue Dahlia, mm-hmm. Dahlia movie, but, which I do want to look up and see if it's still around.
0: And then there were even murder victims that had been brutalized and their bodies mutilated as well. Um, so... They they do think it was like almost like a perfect storm, you know, Mm -hmm. of everything that was uh, occurring,
1: and even some murders after that that looked like the same. They weren't,
0: right? Remember, you said
1: there was some that were similar.
0: Uh, Let's see. So the guy uh, and I got his name last night. uh, Larry Harnish, I think H A R N I S C H. He is the one that got onto this case and became obsessed with it. He's interviewed more than 150 people, ranging from the first officer on the scene uh, to family members of Beth, to her uh, to a former boyfriend, oh, and then to detectives assigned to the investigation, and even the woman who discovered the body. Really? Okay? Yeah, he's done a lot of work. So he has an office in his little uh, South Pasadena home, and it's crammed full of five metal cabinets, 20 boxes of file fol- folders, and four bookcases uh, lined with hundreds of books, all focused on the short homicide or L.A. history.
1: Wow. I wonder what fascinated him about it.
0: I think he it gets into it a little bit oh. here, if I can find it. Um, oh, here it is. Okay, so he was writing a book about the case, but it was never published because uh, uh, Steve Hodel released his book. So when this guy's book was going to go to press, Hodel released his. Well, he didn't want to, you know, Larry didn't want to release his book because it was. he doesn't believe George Hodel did it. And he didn't want it fighting for attention with Steve Hodel's. So he's never published it, and I'm afraid he may not. But um, his research began. When he uh, was a copy editor at the L.A. Times and he was writing a 1997 50th anniversary story on the killing, he had so much additional material when the story ran that he decided to go ahead and write a book. After three drafts, engaging in countless online battles with people writing about the case, whom he constantly fact checks uh, and struggling to find a publisher, he said there's days where he wished he'd never heard of the case. <laughs> And so it was narrowly focused. What he wanted to do first was tell a good crime story and then create an accurate biography of short because he said there's so many lies about her. So he wanted to trace her life from a small town in Massachusetts to California to her death. And he never imagined that he'd unearth a murder scenario and a a suspect. Did did you say he didn't publish it ever? Mm Mm-mm. I want to read it. Oh, so that bad. would
1: be so interesting. Mm-hmm. He didn't publish notes. Nothing.
0: No, He does publish on his blog, which I think I've got at the end. But if you look up Larry Harness, you'll you'll find it. Um, so his suspect actually intrigues LAPD detectives. Yeah, and have they investigated? Do you it's know a viable one? Because
1: uh, you said there's a a woman on the case now.
0: It's either. Well, now I'm wondering if it's a man because they the pronoun is he. So, oh yeah, it might be just he has a typo, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I bet it's a typo. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. So now, first of all, Harnish did not grow up in L.A., um, and so he doesn't have all the black Dahlia, you know, filter. Right? He was raised in Illinois and then Arizona, and he moved to Southern California when he was hired by the Times. In the summer of '96, he was conducting research for a detective novel that he intended to write and he was looking for a random nasty old crime he said uh, that he could use as a plot Right. okay well during his research he recalled reading something about the block black dahlia years earlier and he didn't know her name this is pre-internet days right so he couldn't of google course. her after conducting some initial research at a library he realized that the 50th anniversary was coming up so he you know was like hey let's do a you know an article on it and um, and that uh And he thought that it'd be assigned to another reporter. And his editor's like, well, do you want to write it? And he's like, hell yeah. (laughs) Right. Sure I do. (laughs) So what he did is he got all the clips on the case. uh, He photocopied them. He placed them in chronological order. Um, Very exact. Yes. The editor wanted a noir stroll through the, the clips. But after going over the articles, he realized that boilerplate anniversary stories had been written by reporters on previous anniversaries, and so he didn't want to do that. He wanted to do something different. And so what he did is he wanted to frame it like it was a breaking news story again. That's how he wanted to do the article on the 50th anniversary.
1: Which is good. That's a good idea. I
0: thought he's very smart.
1: And bring attention back to it again.
0: And so what he decided is that he would go out and interview people, like he would report the news, right, like it's a breaking story. And then he would conduct more research. Um, smart. So he went to the local library. Mm-hmm. He photocopied all the microfilm Dahlia stories as well uh, from three major papers: the Examiner, the Herald, Herald Press, and the Daily News. He also created a roster of everyone involved uh, in the stories, including detectives, police of- patrol officers, suspects, family members, witnesses, reporters. He then created a list of people to interview. <laughs>
1: Oh, my.
0: Right. This guy's amazing. And, again, this was all before online searches. Excuse me. So, no you know, searches. He had to scour voter registration records, Department of Motor Vehicle databases, telephone books, newspaper clips, and other sources.
1: That's a dedication for sure.
0: He's a C personality is what mm. I think. Very methodical, analytical. He then pared the list down to a dozen of the people that he believed were the most important to the interview and then ones that were still alive. Now... This is what's interesting. This is one of the myths. This is why I wanted to have this like bonus or part three because it will clear up some of the lies so that people know like when they see a movie or they read a book that says certain things, they know it's not true. So I want to go back to Betty Bersinger. She's the one that found the body. Okay. Um, Larry discovered that one of the first myths around the Dahlia story was, okay, Jack Webb, who created and starred in Dragnet. Yes. He wrote The Badge 11 Years After the Murder. It was one of the first books that chronicled the crime. Really? The Badge? Yep. And so he wrote, quote... Along a dreary, weedy block without a house on either side, a housewife was walking to the store with her five-year-old daughter, scolding her a little because she wanted to play in the dew-wet lots. Halfway up the block, the mother stopped in horror at something she saw in one of the lots. What's that? The child asked. The mother did not answer. Grabbing her hand, she ran with her to the nearest neighbor's house to call the police. That's not what happened.
1: No, one book I had read said she was walking her dog.
0: Well, she told this guy what happened. So she said that um, uh, Bart Bursinger told uh, Larry a different story. She was sitting at her kitchen table telling him, and um, that she's like a elderly grandma, and she has like you know, um, I love grandma pictures on her refrigerator (laughs) and stuff. And she said that she stumbled upon the mutilated body at about uh, ten a.m. She was pushing her three-year-old, not a five-year-old, in the stroller. And not just any stroller, it was a tailor-taught stroller. I guess that was a big deal. She was proud of okay. point it out. <laughs> And she was going to her repair shop to pick up her husband's shoes. Bursinger and her husband had recently purchased their home for $11,000 in a middle-class neighborhood of primarily new, newly married couples with young children. She was heading south on North Avenue negotiating the shards of broken glass on the sidewalk that lined the vacant lots. I glanced to my right and saw this very dead white body. So she did not think it was a mannequin.
1: See, that's in all reports that she thought it was a mannequin.
0: She told Harnish, her voice cracking, my goodness, it was so white. It didn't look quite like anything more than perhaps an artificial model. Um, it was so white and separated in the middle, and I noticed the dark hair in this white, white form.
1: An artificial what? Model? Mm-hmm. So that be
0: a mannequin, that, but that, she yeah, knew a mannequin. it was a dead person. It looked like a mannequin, but she didn't think it was a mannequin.
1: Right. And they say in reports she thought it was a mannequin. Right. No, That's No, she true. knew it was
0: a dead person. She said that uh, Bess uh, was faith, face up, her gray-blue eyes were open, and she had been posed with her elbows bent at the right uh, right angles, her hands over her head, and her legs were spread with her knees straight. Then the pathologist uh, concluded that she died from the blows to the head and the loss of blood because of the smile that was cut into her face.
1: Interesting she remembered that all. That would just be... I mean, in your mind. I mean, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can never get that out.
0: Well, 50 years later, right. when he asked her specifics about what she saw, she said it was too difficult to talk about, and she wouldn't. Wow. hmm Now, um, the other myth is some writers claimed she was lured to Hollywood from the East because she was an inspiring actress. She wasn't. He said a few said that she was a hooker. She wasn't. No. They said at the very least she was promiscuous. She wasn't. Some writers contended their original detective teams were inept. They weren't, except we know one had a problem, obviously, with her being a female.
1: Though you could see where they would see that she was loose. Because all the men, men men, Mm -hmm. it just is hard to believe all the men she was connected with just
0: slept in separate beds. But back then, too, you know, like... Even a lot of men in a woman's life would be considered promiscuous. Like you're saying, I mean, just having that many men, you'd be at least boy crazy. with one. Yeah. At least. So, I mean, it was a totally different time. Well, they portray it as a totally different time. There was a lot of stuff going on. A
1: lot of labels back then.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, she's been called a war widow. She wasn't. Will Fowler, who was a reporter for the Examiner at the time, told Harnish that uh, he had been the first reporter on the scene. He had arrived before the police, and he claimed there were no reporters to prevent, or officers to prevent reporters and photographers from tromping through the crime scene and interfering with the evidence. Shortly before police arrived, Fowler, who wrote a memoir called Reporters, told Larry that he had closed Short's eyes and later um, helped load the bottom half of her body into the coroner's vehicle. But later, Larry tracked down the retired LAPD patrol officer, Wayne Fitzgerald, who, along with his partner, were the first cops on the scene. He contradicted almost every element of Fowler's account. And during the interview, he said, History is an agreed-upon lie, is basically what he said, because that's not true. There were no reporters or anybody at the scene when they arrived.
1: That's what makes me wonder if, They connected or collected DNA, like you said, maybe because they trampled the the scene. Reporters were on the scene.
0: Yeah, but they. By her and. Yeah, we saw that there were a lot of people on it. But I'm not sure they were reporters. They might have been police. But what he's saying is the reporter lied. That reporter was not there before the cops. The cops got there first, which it makes you wonder because you know they scanned. They did. You know that they, they. were privy to what the police were doing by scanning. Um so it it would be a matter of who got there first. Right. I'm thinking I mean I'm gonna agree with the cop that they got there before I do anybody too. else. I do too. But we do know back in that day reporters would just go all over the crime scene at times. Like the the one um oh, that we were talking about the Army Green Beret guy. Shepard. Uh, McDonald. Oh, McDonald. He, you I know, know, reporters were all over the place. That's
1: true. That's why I'm doubtful that they did save a lot of DNA and mm-hmm. because even police were he, all over the place. Yeah, but walking. sperm
0: was in her cavity. Right. So, I mean, they had that. They just weren't. I just don't know where it is. I don't right. know where the, the sperm is. Um, now, uh, Fitzgerald, he did say that they thought it was a mannequin. The police did at first. They thought it was some joke uh, because there was no blood whatsoever at this scene.
1: And she's very white. Yeah. Because she didn't have any blood.
0: He said then when they, you know, figured out what was going on, they called their supervisors and they knew it was going to be big. And that's when this Larry guy created a timeline of when reporters got there, photographers and detectives arrived. So Mm -hmm. what he did, get this, he studied the shadows of the crime scene photographs. And then he was able to determine who got there first.
1: Oh, really? Uh
0: Yep. I always thought the police did. And so basically he went on January 15th, the date the body was discovered, he jammed a a broomstick uh, into the dirt in his front yard, spread uh, out a large sheet of paper, and with a felt tip pen traced the progression of the shadows.
1: Wow. And then
0: he compared that to the photos to get a rough idea of who was at the crime scene and when. Because he wanted to be exact. Wow. And he wanted to back everything up.
1: I would have loved to read his book.
0: Yeah. So that's crazy. Um, now, also, uh, there was a competition among the four papers that actually drove the coverage of the case. There are more than half a dozen editions a day and editors prodded reporters for scoops so editions could be updated. Daily News reporter Jack Smith, later a revered Los Angeles Times columnist, wrote that the frenzied coverage was the front page come to life. Uh, Now, Smith happened to be working at the rewrite desk of the Daily News that morning and drew the story when the police beat phoned in the first bulletin. So he said um, that within a minute, I had written what they had, uh, what may have been the first sentence ever written on the Black Dahlia case. I can't remember it word for word, but my lead pretty much was the nude body of a young woman neatly cut in two at the waist was found early today on a vacant lot near Crenshaw and Exposition Boulevard. Boulevard. He tore a copy out of the, the typewriter. He took it to the city editor who was eager to get the story, you know, printed. He raced through the two lines with his pencil po- poised and wrote in a single word. Smith later discovered that the editor, who had no idea what short looked like, added "beautiful" to describe the victim. I wonder why he did that? Is you have to have sensationalism, right? Now the examiner, have you tried,
1: Have you looked up in the papers? Mm-mm. I, I mean, I, I got a
0: few that were and some, of his. Yeah, well, not this guy, but um, some of the. You know, I saw some of the pictures of the articles, but right. I didn't read them. Uh, Now, the examiner reporters were the most aggressive, and their unorthodox and often unethical approach led them to uncover leads before the detectives. So they even aided the police in determining the identity of the victim. Detectives had planned to mail her fingerprints to the FBI in Washington, but an examiner editor suggested using the paper's sound photo machine, which I thought was interesting, it's similar, excuse me, to a fax. But they used it to transmit them to um, the Washington Bureau, and then they hand-delivered them to the FBI. So it took just, you know, a little bit of time to figure out who she was versus taking, you know, several days or weeks. That was helpful. It was, but they were still poop birds. Right. Um, They also discovered that Elizabeth Schwartz prints were on file because she had been um, arrested, but also she had applied for the clerk job at Camp Cook in California, so that there were two sets, the one when she was arrested and the one when she applied for the job. And then an examiner rewrite man, uh, Wayne Sutton, used a heartless tabloid ploy to obtain background on her. Um, so the city editor, Jimmy Henderson of the examiner, sat in a swivel chair beside him, and Sutton called Schwartz's mother, Phoebe, and said that her daughter won a beauty contest in Southern California. The late Pulitzer Prize winning sports columnist, Jim Murray, was a rewrite man for the examiner at the time and sat next to him. He told Larry in an interview that he's still appalled and the incident was sharply etched in his memory because Wayne called the mother and asked all these questions, took down all these notes, and I sat there and listened to the poor dear mother telling him about her school day triumphs. And I can still see him put his hand over the mouthpiece of the old fashioned upright phone and say, now what do I tell her? And so Richardson wow. screwed up his one good eye and said, go ahead and tell her. And then um, I guess Murray called him a, a son of a bee. Now... Um, well, that is
1: sort of dirty-handed. It is
0: very dirty-handed. And when they told uh, Beth's mother, she, she just wouldn't believe it. She didn't believe it until the police showed up at her front door.
1: That's terrible. hmm
0: Yeah. And then the examiner reporters beat police to the locations where Short had stole all of her belongings shortly before she was killed. Reporters interviewed an acquaintance of Short and discovered that she had checked baggage, remember, at the um, bus station. And so uh, Richardson informed Jack Donahoe, uh, the head LAPD Homicide Squad guy, about his finding and said he would tell them where everything was under one condition, that he wanted the cops to open them at the examiner's office. Wow. So Donahoe was like, no. And then this guy's like, well, no deal, no suitcase. Which, that should be against the law. In fact, it may be now. Like, you're hindering an investigation. I would think so. So, he reluctantly agreed. And then he wrote a book, uh, For the Life of Me. At the, and, and then at the examiner, they opened the trunk. And it contained shorts, clothes, photos of her, and letters from boyfriends, which the paper printed. Reporters and detectives raced to track down the boyfriends identified in the letters. But during uh, World War II, crime surged in L.A. And they would literally have a daily tally. Of the deaths on the front page. Wow! And um, so that
1: reporter that
0: did that to the mother, mm-hmm.
1: misled the mother mm-hmm. and tried to blackmail the police. Mm-hmm. Wrote a book. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't believe anything he put in the book. I
0: wouldn't either. And it's for the no. life of me. Yeah, I'm not interested in you, sir. And then uh, on the day that her uh, body was discovered, the paper had reported two murders, thirteen robberies, and forty-seven burglaries.
1: Wow! Sounds
0: like today. Right. Uh, then they also were inundated with dozens of false confessions. I think it was, what, 50 or 60? And then over the years, it's like up to 500 during the first few months of the murder. And they interviewed a steady stream of men and a few women who claimed to be the killer. So Well, it only
1: takes one, like we talked about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just over and over and over. And um, now... Ann Redding, chair of the Justice Studies Department at Santa Barbara City College, has researched the homicide for more than 30 years, and she uses it as a centerpiece for her uh, study of murder class. Uh, She became frustrated with all the sloppy analysis, the bogus theories, the inaccuracies surrounding her life. It really bothered her. So she began following Larry's blog on the case, which he launched after writing the anniversary story, and she was impressed um, she said he's a journalist, and he lets the facts guide him, and he doesn't have any agenda other than the truth. I wonder why he
1: didn't release the book, just because the—
0: Hodel, yeah, it would yeah, have gotten but- lost. And Hodel's still going around talking about it. Wow. And and so she said he's like an authoritative expert on the case. Like, he's he's the guy.
1: Because there were many bi- books written. hmm I mean—
0: yeah. No, I mean, it would have stolen his thunder. No one would have even heard of it because Hodel— But even years later. Yeah, but, yeah, you have to be strategic. You know, you can't just release a book when another one's going to trump it. Because Steve Hodel is George Hodel's son. A lot of people believe Hodel did it. Now, here's the deal. When Larry first started uh, researching the crime, Mm -hmm. he had no interest in solving it. He just wanted to bring facts, right? He just wanted to bring facts, And he felt those who claimed to have identified a killer were deluded. And he made a discovery, however, that altered his perception. Really? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So, John Douglas, remember him, the Mm -hmm. FBI profiler? Right. He said he felt it was someone who wanted to shock that neighborhood.
1: Because...
0: Well... Oh, wait. You know what? I was just thinking I
1: was going to bring this up. It's interesting. They said... Didn't one of the reporters or a witness say there were no houses...
0: Yeah, and by the but, pictures,
1: there's houses Well, the, he said there
0: were no houses uh, behind, like, on each side of the murder, and that's true. There oh, were just the okay. houses that were in the background, but she was on down. Okay, now, this is interesting. Um, Douglas asked Harn- Harnish, or Larry, um, if he knew about the neighborhood, and Larry didn't know much, but he thought it was a curious choice for the killer. Douglas, He said, that's just a weird choice because of, you know, how he could be seen easily and all of that. As we mentioned in part
1: two, we said it could have been someone living
0: in, the neighborhood. in those
1: houses or a neighborhood.
0: And so that block had not been developed, but the houses nearby were. So in a half hour, the killer could have transported, again, the body to the beach or the mountains, another half hour to the desert. But instead, he left the body in a busy residential area. So Douglas said, quote, someone is going to look out a window and see you. You're going to get your ass caught. So Douglas speculated that the killer wanted to shock and horrify the residents, sending the message that Short was a slut. The killer, Douglas surmised, had some connection to the neighborhood. Well, this intrigued Larry. Decided to embark on a search to find out who lived on the 3800, 3800 block of North Avenue and the surrounding neighborhood. So he wanted to see if there was a link between the killer, the crime scene, and the neighborhood. So he decided to start from the beginning and researched how that area got developed. So as part of the Spanish Rancho part of development there he read a history of the ranch he interviewed a group of scholars at cal poly pomona pomona he conducted de- detailed say the uh, architecture and history i mean this guy he goes deep Boy. he met with walter tim uh, limert or Limert, Limer, the son of the man who developed the housing track uh, and the neighborhood was named after him uh and then he spent months searching for information about the area, studying police commission meetings from the 30s and 40s. He went over all the city paperwork centered on wow. the neighborhood. He's thorough. He discovered that a mob boss, Jack Dragna, lived four and a half blocks from the crime scene, that he thought was interesting. So then he had a okay, is there an organized crime connection, right? So he had to research that there wasn't. Um and so Well, he, Siegel, remember, he came yeah, up in Bugsy, part two. Yeah, Bugsy Siegel mm, buggy, came up. Bugsy, yeah. Which I never knew that. Uh, if he entered, encountered anything significant, he believed it would stand out like a beacon. You know, like he would be like, oh, this might be it. It just
1: wouldn't fit the puzzle. But, I mean, yeah, he'd be able to see it.
0: Yeah, but nothing did. Mm-hmm. So nothing stood out. He did find all the history fascinating, but what? nothing stood out <laughs> until... Oh. Until. Uh Uh-huh. So, a Dahlia enthusiast heard about his investigation, and he sent him a box filled with photocopies of newspaper articles about the scene, or about the crime, a transcript of the inquest that contained most of the autopsy notes, a homemade documentary, and a copy of Short's grades from elementary school, and then a dim photocopy of the marriage certificate of her older sister, Virginia Short. So at first, nothing seemed significant, so he forgot about it, right? But
1: why a marriage document? I don't know. Of your sister.
0: People just collect stuff, right? Right. So during the summer of '97, his family was out of town, so he had some extra time. So he really began digging into the box. And when he studied the marriage certificate, he discovered the couple were married in Inglewood. So Larry perked up when he noticed that a witness to the ceremony listed an address that looked like North Avenue. But he wasn't really? sure. Yeah, because it had been photocopied. Right. So he couldn't read it for sure, and it was smudged. So what he did is he picked up an original in Sacramento, the state capitol. And he you know, sent the check in, got a copy ordered. A month later, when he was talking to his wife during a break from his copy editing duties, she told him that he received a letter from the state. He had, had her open it up. And tell him the name of the street the witness, Barbara Lindgren, listed. And it was North Avenue. Oh. So now he's like, uh-huh. So he pulled a dusty cardboard box out of his office. He fishes out a Manila folder, removes a copy of the marriage certificate, and points to the address, 3959 Norton Avenue. That was only a block from where her body was found. Oh. So this was a component no one had ever looked at, and I wasn't quite there yet. But it was interesting. Not every now everything depended on finding out who exactly is Barbara Lingren, so which remember, is a witness. This is a witness to Elizabeth's sister's marriage.
1: And oh, to the okay, because I was getting confused.
0: Mm-hmm. So Virginia, so
1: the one that found the body, the woman, was a witness to. No.
0: It's not the same lady. They both have the name Barbara, oh, okay. but it's not the same lady.
1: Oh, Mm-mm. okay.
0: Yeah, because the one that found her is, um, I think, ball singer. Uh, this is Barbara Lindgren.
1: Oh, so she
0: was at Elizabeth Short's sister's wedding. And why would that? Because she lived a block away from the body.
1: Okay. 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 There's so, a lot of information. I was getting a little confused.
0: Right now, he wanted to interview Virginia and her husband to try to figure out who this Barbara lady was but they were all dead. Oh. So the clips at the times and phone book discoveries or directories from the 40s were no help either. Finally, he spent afternoons in a dim sub-basement of an LA County Hall of Records leafing through those big books that they have. Right. Of property deeds, trying to figure out okay, where, you know, who is this blah blah. blah. Uh now um He found the owner of the house. The woman on the deed who paid the property taxes was Ruth Bailey. So then he went to the Times morgue and he searched for clips of Ruth Bailey. And he eventually um, went from a writer to a sleuth. Oh. (laughs) Because the marriage certificate indicated there was a link between the Short family and the South, you know, Norton Avenue, right? From studying the uh, microfilmed Times clips... He discovered that Ruth Bailey, who owned the house, okay. I know it's going to get confusing. You may have to take notes. <laughs> yes, because I, I'm trying to.
1: I'm trying to keep up.
0: Okay, so Ruth Bailey, who owned the house, had a daughter whose married name was Barbara Lingren. She was the matron of honor at the wedding of Virginia Beth's Which is sister, Elizabeth
1: Short's sister.
0: Yeah. So
1: we're calling her Beth because. You know, it's just yeah. shorter,
0: and she preferred. It and be she preferred that. it. Yes. Okay, so to to make it plain, Ruth Bailey owned the house, and her daughter was named Barbara Lindgren, and Barbara Lindgren was the matron of honor of Virginia Short.
1: Wow. Best
0: sister. Okay, so she's the older sister. Remember that she kept saying she's going to go visit. Right. She never did. And she never did. Now.
1: That is interesting.
0: It gets more interesting. Now, the reason I like this guy's work is he doesn't add crap to it like everybody else, right? Okay. Here's the story about Ruth Bailey's husband, the mother of Barbara, the matron of honor. Ruth had been married to a Walter Bailey, a Los Angeles doctor, oh, a surgeon with the skill to have performed the bisection. His medical office, where he specialized in performing hysterectomies and mastectomies. Oh. Remember one of her breasts was removed? Right. Was only a few blocks from the Biltmore Hotel. The lead detective on the case, Harry Hansen, told the grand jury that he believed Short's killer had surgical expertise. Hansen tells the jurors that he had worked cases where bodies were mutilated and bisected, but the Short murder was different. He said, quote, I have a little pet theory of my own. I think this was a medical man committed that committed the murder, a very fine surgeon. I base that conclusion on the way the body was bisected. It is unusual in the sense that the point at which the body was bisected is, according to eminent medical men, the easiest point in the spinal column to sever. He hit it exactly.
1: Wow.
0: Okay. Well, that's another suspect, then, John Jigsaw John St. John. What? So, so John St. John, whose nickname was Jigsaw John. So, John Jigsaw John St. John. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> Say that a few times no, fast. No. Uh, so, he took the case after Hanson retired. Okay? And then he had control of it until he retired in 1993. And... Um this Larry guy shadowed him uh, the last day. So during lunch... The, det- the uh, reporter. Mm-hmm. During lunch at a dim, smoky steakhouse near downtown, he asked him about the Dahlia case. St. John, who wore badge number one, spent 43 years as a homicide detective, investigated more than 1,000 murders and 12 serial killers. He sipped his VO in water and told me that he did not believe the man who committed the murder was a serial killer.
1: Oh, I don't think that either. I
0: never have. I don't either. His signature was unique, combining a number of homicidal elements that he had not seen since the murder. Now, again, this guy has 43 years and 12 serial killers under his belt, so he's never seen anything like it again. He said some of them have never been revealed to the public. Wow. Yeah, and they don't want, you know, in case they ever find them, right? So, okay, let me get this straight just to make sure. all right, yes.
1: So, Barbara, mm-hmm. her mother owned the house on the street mm-hmm. where Elizabeth Short was found. Mm-hmm.
0: One block away. And she away. was
1: the maid of honor mm-hmm. of Elizabeth Short's sister, mm-hmm. who was married to... Her no, no, mother. Her mother was married to...
0: Walter Bailey.
1: Who was a doctor, surgeon?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it gets weirder.
1: Oh, that's just
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So I am completely in agreement with John Jigsaw, John Saint John, the detective, number badge number one, right? I am in complete agreement with him that there, he it was a one off, right? Uh, that he had a signature, but he, like he said, there's some things that we are not going to share with the public because we don't want to compromise a case. So, they always keep something back. Yes. and so, But I'm thinking now it's Walter. Well, I don't know, but he believes that the killer only killed once. Okay. Now, the microfilm clips reveal that Bailey had left his wife and family in 1946 because of his relationship with a female physician he worked with named Alexandra Patrika. Larry could not interview Patrika, Bailey, or his wife because they had obviously died at that point. So he ended up talking to numerous retired detectives who had either attended medical school with Bailey at USC or worked with him at the L.A. County Hospital, and they later researched... Uh, his years as a surgeon in France during World War I as well. So he's going all the way back to this guy's military record in World War I. Also, his will was contested. So Larry was able to study the files that came from that case, the probate files in the Hall of Records, which listed the contents of his office down to the serial number of all of his typewriters and all of his debts. Okay. Now this is interesting. Um... The 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 contest was over the fact that the lady that he left his family for, right? They were fighting her on the will. The family they're like, no, because you know.
1: she was in the will and was left everything. Mm-hmm. But he was was he divorced? Well, did and you they're say?
0: saying yeah, and they're saying that the reason they were uh, contesting the will is because that lady threatened to expose the doctor and their affair if he didn't put her in the will. So they're saying that the will is not legitimate because he changed it under duress. Right. Okay. Now, former colleagues and relatives expressed to uh, Larry how shocked they were at how Bailey's personality drastically changed toward the end of his life. An interview with Bailey's former secretary was of particular interest. She told Larry that she was stunned that Bailey and Patrika used to pick up dinner to go, listen to classical music at their medical office, and eat dinner while watching surgery films.
1: Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. This definitely is a suspect. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder why they didn't find all that. When they were investigating I think they, the houses. I mean, did they not even look into who was living? Well, they may not have,
0: you know. I mean, they're detectives the with different cases and stuff. I mean, they may have surveyed, you know, or, you know, the neighborhood. But a case like that? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to answer at that. At just for
1: witnesses and for, oh, that's really interesting.
0: So, the, you know, Larry is like, okay, so we got this guy, this guy's secret, He's in constant fear of being exposed. He spends his evenings watching surgery films. That's just off the charts weird. (laughs) So Larry thought he might be on the right track. Then he obtained his death certificate. And one of the causes of death, which I didn't know you could have more than one, is listed as encephalomalacia, or malacia, I believe. So he had to write to a medical school professor to figure out what the heck that is. It's a structural lesion in the bane, bane, brain okay. that softens the brain tissue. The location of the lesion and the cause as well as when it occurred can be significant and it can have a significant impact on the behavioral manifestations caused by the lesion. So there are people with this lesion without any psychological pathology. They're fine, but others will have a significant pathology which may include bizarre violence what does that mean like
1: he was hit in the head or he they fell don't know. Or
0: yeah they i don't know they don't know how it
1: happened for it to be in your brain but two causes of death
0: no there's more several one of the how can you have two causes of death, causes of death. <laughs> i have no idea okay so the they all agree that the location of the lesion on the brain is key the problem is they don't have the brain so they don't know where was the lesion. So he he asked if um, the the doctor who's helping him said, "Do you have a copy of the autopsy notes or know the section of the brain where the lesion was identified?" And if it was uh, conducted by the L.A. County coroner, he might be able to get a copy because it's a public record. Right. But it's not; it's with the Veterans Administration because oh. he was a military, and they're very hard to obtain. Okay, and
1: what difference would that have made?
0: If the, finding out if where the, it was
1: because he could be violent. If where the lesion
0: was can make him violent. Oh, it would
1: make him violent on what part of the brain? Mm-hmm. I see that. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Is there a way to let him in where he'll be quiet? Do you think for the next podcast or yeah. no? Sorry, we got a dog here that's scratching at the door, wanting in. Okay, so I'll keep going while you let him in. Okay, so Bailey's lesion and drastic personality could be the result of what's called a frontotemporal dementia from a series of little strokes. So, this is the doctor. A frontotemporal dementia primarily affects the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. With this condition, you would see a radical change in personality. The drive for violence and sexuality can come up and get worse and worse, but it wouldn't necessarily affect his sensory or motor skills, and he could still do surgeries. So this is at this point, it's all supposition because we don't know where the lesion was. However, if the lesion is at the front part of the brain where you've got impulse control, sexual drive, etc., if it was there... Then it could have impacted this doctor's uh, ability, and he could have gotten violent and hypersexual.
1: And no witnesses were alive to even attest to his behavior.
0: Yeah, they said he got weird at the end. Well, weird, but I mean, how weird? Well, like, watching
1: surgeries while you well, eat that's, dinner that's weird, and having but, an
0: affair—I mean,
1: well, that is weird. But I mean,
0: like violent. I don't know. So they finally tracked down Barbara. That was the lady oh. that was the matron of honor. And um, Lingren Barbara, told Larry how scandalized the family was when her father left for Patrika. The drastic personality shift at the end of his life was, quote, not anything I could have ever dreamed of happening. When he asked her about Elizabeth Schwartz, she became very weary And she agreed to serve as a matron of honor at Short's sister's wedding because there wasn't anybody else. So when he suggested that such a role indicated a close level of friendship, she was very dismissive and refused to elaborate.
1: Well, that's sort of obvious, though, isn't it? I mean, you had to be close or know her at least.
0: Mm -hmm. But she said she she just felt sorry for her, which she's probably hedging because she doesn't want people to think her dad killed Elizabeth Short.
1: the murder. So what he
0: was trying to figure out is how... Um, close, you know, number one, was she to the sister? And also she wanted to know about the dad or he wanted to know about the dad. Was the dad, did his personality change? And it had,
1: she must've had suspicions of her dad or why would you not admit? She didn't say
0: well, you know, I wouldn't want to either. I mean, if, you know, if people just came around media, and I know my dad yeah. and I love my dad, and then people are like, yeah, was he crazy? Because could he have killed her? I would have been the same way. I wouldn't have given information.
1: I probably wouldn't have either. But then, you know, you want the case solved. Makes me wonder if she knew something.
0: Now, okay, so we've now got a, a, a viable suspect. He had to stitch everything together and try to create a scenario. So, this is what he theorized. Lindgren was a matron of honor at the marriage of Virginia Short and Adrian West, who Larry learned quite a bit about after interviewing their son, Elizabeth Short's nephew. West was the ultimate Boy Scout, a devout Presbyterian. He and his wife knew the Bailey family well.
1: Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: And, you know, now, now he's, you know, it's just a position here. But he's wondering... If Elizabeth, who was couch surfing during the time and basically homeless for the past year, was dropped off at the Biltmore and then had no place to stay. And maybe she, you know, her sister and brother-in-law is like, hey, if you ever get in trouble, if you're ever down and out and need help, call the Bailey family. Now, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, I don't. It sounds a little weird and awkward. But she would have, if there's anybody that would have called someone for help that she didn't know well, it would have been Elizabeth. Because that's what she did. Right. So I could see her calling the Bailey families, actually.
1: But why wouldn't you call your sister?
0: They probably were like, no, we're not going to help you. I'm not sure if the music is being heard on our podcast, but if y'all hear music in the background, you know, it just doesn't matter where we go, uh, Mom. It, we're just going to have dogs and husbands. <laughs> well, I can put the dogs up. Okay. Now, this gets even more interesting. Um, Now, basically, he's saying if she called Walter, Walter Bailey, who was only a few blocks down from where she was at at the Biltmore, she might have ended up at his office even. Like, she might have known his office was in the area and walked down. But here is where it gets even more interesting. Okay? So, there's one more variable to the hypothesis, and that's this. The profiler, John Douglas, speculated the killer was probably angry at some residents on Norton Avenue and intended to, quote, put the fear of God into that neighborhood. Larry recalled that when he learned that Bailey had adopted two girls and then had one biological son whom he doted on and who had been killed. How? Okay, so he's got two adopted girls. Right. So Barbara is adopted. Okay. But he has one child and that's his son. From him, okay,
1: that he was close to or doted on.
0: Yes, in 1920, the son was riding a bike when he saw his younger sister was about to step off the sidewalk. He rode to her to prevent her from wandering into a busy street when he was hit by a truck. Oh no, Dr. Bailey was devastated. He said, Walter was our only son. The only child of our flesh and blood, he told a newspaper. Our hearts and souls were wrapped up in him. I've seen much of death, but I've never understood it before. Now, a few years before his death, Bailey disinherited the two people living at 3959 South Norton Avenue. The daughter who Bailey might have blamed for his son's death and his estranged wife, who was supposed to be supervising the girl. Oh, Get this. Bailey's son was killed on January 13th. And some people think the short was actually killed on that date that she was killed. Really? She was either not taken until that day and killed, or she was taken on the ninth and then tortured and abused and then finally killed on the thirteenth. And, and then why her they body think? was found on the fifteenth. Why do they think that? I don't know. It there might has be. to be a reason. I don't know. It doesn't say here. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean we do have, you know, some witnesses that we know that, you know, that can be um, tricky, right? But we do have some witnesses and some like witnesses who knew her that said they saw her all the way up to the 13th. Oh, that's Remember? true. Yes, but then yes, she it's disappeared. Second. So I don't know. It's like, okay, is there just a gap between the 9th and the 13th because you know she wasn't around her usual group of people or and or the eyewitnesses are incorrect, and she was actually taken the ninth and then held for four days and then killed, mutilated some more post-death, cut in half, and then dropped off for shock in the neighborhood. But where would he hold her? Well, he has an office. I mean, he has I know, but it's a, plenty of you know, places it's a as a doctor. Office. Yeah, but I'm sure he could have where he has a key or a lock to That's something true. and says That's don't get true. in there. There's supposition as far as, you know, like, maybe she told him a sob story or something and made him mad. Uh, I, again, I don't think it was a rage-induced killing that she made anybody mad. I think someone wanted to kill. But, I mean, that could be a part of it. But I don't even want to get into the supposition. Cause no. I just don't know what it is. Because we don't know. But Larry took the, the blogger who interviewed uh, him, which, again, the link will be in our show notes. So I'm getting this information from, to the neighborhood. So he took her or uh, her, him to the house where Bailey lived and it was only one block away. And he said, as you can see, it's an easy walk from the crime scene to Walter Bailey's house, only one block. So it's clear that Bailey has a connection to the street where Short lived. The Short family and the Bailey families know each other. He's a surgeon with mental problems who underwent a drastic personality shift He had the strange habit of watching surgery films at night. He has a secret and lived in constant fear of being exposed, according to other people. I'll never say I'm 100% sure, and I still don't have all the details I'd like, and I'm hoping to get more, but it makes a neat package, doesn't it?
1: So he was living there at the time, and then he left his wife.
0: Well, I don't know if he was there at the time. That's actually, what I'm wondering. Because, because I think he left them in 1946 and she was murdered uh, in 1947 in January. But he definitely lived there before and he would have known that area. Well, that is true. Mm-hmm. He because could have he easily driven there over there. Short walk. And it from goes the back house. to John Douglas saying, What's up with the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Why here? Mm-hmm. You know, like th- this it just, is a liable. Viable. Sus-
1: a viable suspect.
0: It is because we're both
1: having trouble talking, aren't we?
0: Choose, you know, body dumps for a reason. There's always a reason, you know, and usually the reason is out in the middle of nowhere where the body won't be found. This killer takes her body to a middle class neighborhood and dumps her in plain sight. Excuse me, in plain sight. You know, I wish I was so he burping. That had would be to great. Be
1: familiar. We're both having troubles.
0: Body troubles. Husband troubles, dog troubles. Speaking troubles. Okay. Now, Rick Jackson uh, has spent a a decade in the LAPD's elite robbery homicide division. He was the assistant officer in in charge of the department's cold case unit before he retired, and he's familiar with Larry's theory. He said the coincidences picked his interest. Quote, the location between the Bailey house and the crime scene, his medical ability, his obsession with watching surgery films and some other things Larry came up with make Bailey an interesting suspect. Uh, He doesn't have the smoking gun, but his theory definitely has to be included in the most likely theories, which tells me they're not doing anything.
1: So in all his belongings in the will, they didn't find just very few things. I don't know.
0: I don't think they found a smoking gun. Now, he does get into Hodel um, and how, you know, the family's, you know, his dad's father's, you know, or his dad's photo album was filled with pictures of, you know, family, friends, and several unidentified women. Two of the photos, uh, Steve Hodel was convinced were Elizabeth Shorts, and then that is what uh, triggered his investigation. And we know that, again, he was tried for uh, molesting his 14-year-old daughter, um, and you know there there was just a lot of different things that went on there. I actually do think his daughter was molested, but the jury believes she's a pathological liar. But the photos, like we've looked at, I they do not look like her. And oh, he, the son
1: of the yeah yeah. yeah. And now,
0: why do you think she was
1: molested by him?
0: Because he was a pervert. He was okay, sick. just his character. Well, remember he liked to research he did. that sadist guy. Did. He did. So, um, and there were some other like if you listen to Root of Evil. It'll make sense there. Uh, but the LAPD cold case unit, they do not think that the photos have any resemblance to short, just like we don't. Um, and let's see what else there is. Okay, so Hodel... Later claimed he was one of the 20th century most prolific serial killers, and he attributes at least 25 murders to George Hodel, including the Northern California Zodiac killings, in addition to homicides in Chicago, Texas, the Philippines, and a dozen in Central California. So because he went like crazy attributing his dad with all these murders, um, he's now been discredited. Like at first, yeah. police were very interested in his theories because... They were looking at George Hodel, but when Steve Hodel's like, you know, got this guy going all over the world killing people, you know, they're like, wait a minute, you know, you had us until then. I saw his first interview,
1: or maybe it was just a re- replay, and it and, and it was interesting. He had me convinced at, at first, but as he kept interviewing and saying, it, it was just outlandish, yeah. some of the stuff that that he was saying about his dad. Like he wanted it so bad to be his dad.
0: Um, I'm looking just through here to see. Um, Makes
1: me wonder if he hated his dad.
0: Well, I don't think he was well loved at all. Right. Um, he did say that Elizabeth did have a really rough time when her boyfriend Gordon died. That she kind of just lost her way. Uh, she didn't get into drugs or drinking and things like that. But she just didn't have. She was just lost, and you can tell because she went from couch to couch. Right, right. So um, she would use the war widow whose baby died as a way to get money for meals. Uh, Again, she was not sleeping with everybody. And she wasn't married to him. Nope, she wasn't married. Um, They think that she made up the story about meeting her sister at the Biltmore so she could get rid of Red Manley, the married Mm -hmm, guy. mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't believe that the cops were inept. He said this was a state-of-the-art investigation at the time. They threw hundreds of cops and investigators borrowed from other departments at this murder. Homicide was the elite LAPD unit, and Harry Hansen and his partner were uh, experienced professionals. There was zero corruption in this unit. Yes, there was some in the department, but that was mostly in Vice. So they were not going to cover this up. Uh, Then her name... She used to frequent a drugstore in Long Beach and customers called her the Black Dahlia. Oh, really? Mhm. Yeah. Based on the 1946 movie The Blue Dahlia because of her swirling black hair and black clothing. Mm-hmm. I found out that a woman in the drugstore is the one who named her. She said to a cop who spent time in there, they should call her the Black Dahlia and the cop uh, told the newspapers and it stuck.
1: I would be like we said before twice. Interested in the Blue Dahlia.
0: And again, she was not interested in uh, the movies. She, um, you know, again, claimed to be a waitress at one point, claimed to be a war widow, claimed her infant son died, yet she never had a child. And that's where Larry is wondering if she was, you know, she contacted Walter Bailey because she didn't have anywhere to stay and that she used the dead son story. And that Walter Bailey found out and got angry because he had lost his son and killed her. Oh. Yeah. But it's
1: still interesting why she wouldn't call her sister that lives right there. Well, they there. maybe
0: didn't get along very well. well or that's her sister true. told her no, or she didn't want her family to know how lost she was because she lied to all of her family. She lied to everybody.
1: But her, her sister told her to call. Maybe the husband didn't want her. Who knows? We don't know that the well, sister told know.
0: her to call oh. anybody. That was a supposition, it wasn't a reality. So but what do you think? What do you think about him as a suspect? I think
1: he's an excellent suspect. And it fits perfectly.
0: You doesn't it to you? It fits I mean, it fits really good. Um, I would love to get the medical record from the VA to see, you know, what that says. Like I would love to see what the autopsy l- revealed.
1: And he couldn't get it because it was a military. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's no way. I think he'd probably have to jump through all hoops or you'd at least have to be law enforcement or something like that. But it's an interesting case. I learned a lot about Elizabeth that I didn't know, a lot about the crime that I didn't know. Uh, I am very curious on several things. Do they have any of the original evidence? Do they have any um, potential DNA t- testing material? If so, why are they not testing it? Are they waiting, you know, for technology to get more advanced so they don't destroy it and then not have anything, you know? I wonder if the detective
1: working on the case, if she's even,
0: you know, working
1: this way with it. You know, maybe she's keeping quiet because of, you know, reporters and Mm -hmm. the people. And what I have found
0: about about police is, you know, it may seem like they're not doing anything on the case. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're not. We've seen plenty of those. Right. But this is such a huge case it is it would definitely be a feather in the cap Mm -hmm. to solve it Mm -hmm. and we find that detectives are very determined some of them and they will work the case and try to solve it but again it i'm thinking the only way to solve this case is through DNA, and I just don't know if they have it.
1: Yeah, and every when one detective dies, they have someone else working on it, so mm-hmm. it is still an active case. It is. But yeah, it'd have to be in DNA, because there's nothing else. Yeah. Nothing else. I'm sure that office might be t- torn down by now.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, well, Wal- Walter Bailey, to me, is probably just as viable a suspect as George uh, Hodel. Hodell uh, if not I think more. he's better. Yeah, more but, of. Us. And it could be like a lot of the cases turn out. It was someone that was not in the file.
1: Yeah, I'm leaning towards
0: you know Bailey. But Bailey is definitely an interesting option. Which normally we like to tidy up our cases, you know, because we I focus know, right? in on how to not be a victim, you know, in our seasons. But this one, you know, you have to do Black Dahlia when you do. A historical crime.
1: Oh, yeah. Because she's right up there. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it'll ever be saved.
0: Yeah. I mean, solved. Yeah, I don't either. I was saved. Yeah. I think you're flustered because of the dogs. I am. Scratching. I apologize,
1: listeners. <laughs> and there are pictures and information on the website. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Outlineofamurder.com. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have stuff on Instagram. And our Facebook is hopping. We are really getting a lot of new viewers or new followers, and so appreciate that, guys. And uh, tell someone you keep know, sharing, if you, leave reviews. Right, we if appreciate you like it. The, like the show. Yep. And as a final note, the Manhattan was the drink of the time right, during right. Black Dahlia's life uh, that year. Do we year. still
1: have an alcohol fund?
0: Going? I think we have a drink fund. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be anything, any kind of drink. Tea. Yes. Coffees, wines, not things required, like that. Not required, of course. No, but if they want to donate, they if can. If you want to. All right. It's going to be time to get to the lipstick killer. Oh, that's an interesting one, too. And hopefully you don't kill Stephen for not watching the dogs. Oh.
1: Speed doll.
0: <laughs> Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? <laughs>